You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Good morning, friends. Thanks for joining us. If you're new here, we're glad you're here. Uh, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, thanks for, for being a part of, of Midtown this morning. I want to start our time with a, a scene from a really obscure book series. Some of you more voracious readers in the room may have heard of it. It's called Harry Potter. Yeah, I knew there were a couple. I knew I was going to get a shout from Talia on that one at the very least. It's a big, big HP gal. Uh, right in the middle of the first book in the series, it's called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Harry is exploring, he's the main character, he's exploring around his school for wizarding called Hogwarts. And he stumbles upon an old classroom. And the classroom is inscribed, it says Erised on the outside. And so he decides to explore. He's never heard of this word or heard of this classroom. So he pops his head in, he walks around a little bit, there's desks huddled in the corner, and then there's a huge mirror in the other corner. Going from floor to ceiling, huge gold ornate mirror. And this is the mirror of Erised. Now remember... This is a kid's book. It's not terribly subtle. Erised is desire spelled backwards. It's a mirror. Yeah, you're catching on. You guys got it. So Harry, he comes upon this mirror. He looks into it. And to his amazement, he sees his parents. And the reason that's amazing is because his parents are dead. Like super dead. He hasn't known them in his whole life. Since he was an infant, he hasn't met his parents. And so he sees them in the mirror. He's amazed. He looks around, hoping to see them behind him as well. And they aren't there. And so he realizes there's something magical about this mirror. So he runs to grab his friend, Ron. He brings Ron into the room, and Ron looks into the mirror, but he doesn't see Harry's parents. Ron sees himself holding up a trophy for winning in Quidditch, which is the sport that they play at Hogwarts. He sees himself as an athletic champion. And so now they're even more confused. What the heck is this mirror? What's going on? So Harry approaches his mentor, Dumbledore, and Dumbledore explains it to them. He says, the mirror shows the viewer the deepest, most desperate desire of their heart. And he goes on to say that while the mirror is clarifying, it's also dangerous and deceiving. Dumbledore says, men have wasted away before it, entranced and driven mad by what they see. See, what the mirror of Erised exposes, and what Dumbledore realizes, is a foundational truth that often runs underneath the rest of our lives. We just don't often know it. We all adore something over everything else. Every single one of us in this room has something about which we would say, if I could just have this, if I could grasp this, if I could gain this, then I'd have peace. Then I'd have an identity. Then I'd have purpose or meaning. Everyone worships something. Everyone makes something ultimate and supreme. Everyone adores something above everything else. There's another author who mentions this in a speech he gave at Kenyon College. His name's David Foster Wallace. He says, the so-called real world of man and money and power, hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to all be lords of our tiny, skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. And he's an agnostic. He looks around our world and he sees everyone Worships. And in our Western world, we don't really love that idea. We don't think of ourselves this way. Fewer and fewer people in our culture would report that they worship anything at all. Christianity and religious traditions across the border are on the decline. 
We like to think that worship and gods and all of that language, it's religion and it's archaic and it's old and it's ancient, and we are enlightened now. We are free, modern people. We're not captive to worship or adoration in the same way. We've left those chains behind. But the poets, the authors, the prophets of our culture, people like J.K. Rowling and David Foster Wallace, they know better. Because they can look underneath the facade of our so-called enlightened lives and they can see clearly that while we may not use language like God or worship anymore, we all adore something over everything else. And this isn't just an ethereal philosophical idea that's disconnected from our lives. Sometimes we think of that, right? Religion and worship and adoration, that's all kind of pie-in-the-sky stuff. This, whatever we worship, whatever we adore, this leaks into every other part of our lives, you guys. It drives everything about us. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, our habits, our prayers, all of them are like streams that flow from the spring of our inner adoration. What we adore makes us who we are. For instance, when we adore money or career or success, we will become people who overwork. We will. That's what will happen to us. It will affect our behavior. When we adore comfort over all else, we will become consumed with the bigger house or the better car or the nicer clothes. It'll happen. When we adore ourselves, we will become people who are dismissive of others or envious of others' success or just constantly concerned about my place and status over and against everyone else's. Our behaviors always extend from our adorations. And there's a guy who wrote a whole book on this. His name's James K.A. Smith. He called the book, You Are What You Love. He said this, Your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. This is because our action, our doing, bubbles up from our loves, which, as we've observed, are habits we've acquired through the practices we're immersed in. That means the formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood of consciousness. I might be learning to love something that I'm not even aware of and that nonetheless governs my life in unconscious ways. And he goes on in the book to describe behaviors and structures that extend from our adorations or our loves. He calls them liturgies. All humans have liturgies. All humans have habits that form them into unconsciously bending the needle of their hearts, bending the needle of their adorations and their loves. What we adore makes us who we are. And all the brokenness we see in our world, all the brokenness we lament in ourselves and others, it exists because we've adored the wrong things. We've adored the wrong things in the wrong ways at the wrong times. And if we want to become people of deep health and life, it's going to mean constantly reorienting ourselves towards adoration of the right thing. And so that should prompt a couple questions in us. First, what is the right thing to adore above all else? And second, how do I become someone who adores the right thing? And those questions aren't new. Those are foundational questions that humans have asked for as long as they've been around. In fact, they're actually questions Jesus himself came to answer for each and every one of us. Thank God. See, Jesus was fully aware of our disordered adorations, the way that our wrong loves have led us to pain or brokenness or despair. And his ministry was committed to healing us through right adoration to God and teaching us how to practice that right adoration. Over and over again, he exposes wrong adoration and then leads us toward right adoration. And one of the primary ways he taught us to do that is through prayer. Prayer is the crucible in which our adorations get revealed and shaped. And so learning the contours, the nuances of a life of prayer, it's the primary way that we become people who are oriented towards the right thing and not towards the wrong thing. And so that's why we've actually started this teaching series here at Midtown. 
Uh, we're examining a book called Psalms in our Bibles. Uh, we're calling the series something groundbreaking, Psalms. It's the name of the series. And uh, it's a collection, uh, this book, of 150 poems that have shaped the prayer lives of the followers of God for millennia. These are actually uh, the same things that Jesus read, the same things that guided Jesus in his own prayer life. We're studying these and learning how they teach us today how to pray. And so each week we're looking at a different psalm and what the psalm teaches us about a particular prayer practice. Uh, We've also created a resource that can help us do this throughout the weeks as well. So we explore a psalm and prayer practice this morning, and then we have a resource that all of you can go home and use to guide you in your prayer practice. Uh, So if you don't have one of those, you can grab one on the way out. We'll have it at our next step table. You can pick one of those up. We want to make sure that all of us get to do this each day. Uh, Everyone in our church is committing to 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening of practicing whatever prayer that we explored that Sunday. And so today, we're going to read Psalm 95 together and examine the practice of adoration in prayer. We learn from this psalm how we become people of health and life, people who adore the right thing in the right ways. And so friends, if you have a Bible, open it with me uh, to the book of Psalms. If you flip to the middle of your Bible, you might just land there. It's a pretty big book, right, in the middle. Uh, We're going to be at Psalm 95, so right kind of in the middle of the book as well. Uh, The words are going to be behind me on the screen as well. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can follow along there. Psalm 95, starting in verse 1. A call to worship and obedience. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise like the little ones in the room to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and the dry land which his hands have formed. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord of our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Oh, that today you would listen to his voice. Don't harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your ancestors tested me and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are people whose hearts go astray and they do not regard my ways. Therefore, in my anger, I swore, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallowed be your name. That's a phrase that most of us know. If you spend any time around Midtown, you're going to hear that. We just said it together in the Lord's Prayer. And even if you haven't been raised in the church or you're not as familiar with churchy language, Those are words that have crept into our culture all the time. They're in music and movies and books and other places. They're famous words. Hallowed be your name. And they come up when Jesus' disciples ask him to teach them how to pray. Because like many of us, the disciples found prayer really difficult, challenging to enter into. And Jesus responded by telling them that once they've addressed God as their loving father, once they've set the foundation of who God is and oriented their hearts and minds towards him, then they should get right to hallowing. Before they ask for anything, before they seek forgiveness, before anything else, hallowing. And most of us have no clue what that means. Most of us who say those words every week have no clue what that means. Most of us, it just sounds like fancy religious language. And so we pray through those words because they sound nice, and then we just sort of move on. What is hallowing, right? What the heck does Jesus mean, and why does he make it a priority here? Well, the word itself, it's an old one. It's actually an old English word that we don't have a great modern equivalence for. That's why a lot of modern Bible translations still use the word, because it captures something. To hallow, 
means to treat something as ultimate or sacred. It means to make something the most important thing, the most supreme thing in our lives. In other words, to hallow something means to adore it. Hallowing is adoration language. When Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he began by instructing them to adore God. Start with adoration. Before you do anything else, start with adoration. And that's where our prayer life should begin as well. In the psalm we just read together, Psalm 95, it's one of the foremost texts in the Bible about how we do this, what adoration looks like and how we do it. Uh, throughout church history, it's been called the venite, which means uh, Latin. It's Latin for O come, which are the first two words, the invitational words of this psalm. For millennia, the church has said, this is what adoration looks like. This is how we learn to adore in our lives. And so in this psalm, we find three things about adoration. First, we find what adoration is and isn't. Second, we find why we practice adoration. And third, we find how we practice adoration. What it is and isn't, why we practice it, and how we practice it. First, what adoration is and isn't. Notice in the poem, there are three calls made to the listener or the reader. They happen in verse 1 and verse 6 and verse 7. And each of those calls are directed towards a different part of the human person. So look at verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. That's speaking to our emotions. Sing. Make a joyful noise. Make great music together. Adoration engages our deepest emotions. And so adoration is about our hearts. But notice that it doesn't stop there. It's not just emotional. Keep reading. Verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel. That's not speaking to our emotions. That's speaking to our bodies, to our will. So the thing that actually moves and acts in the world, the thing that we have control and power over, our will and our bodies. And so adoration is not just about what your heart feels when you sing songs. It's about what your hands go and do. Adoration is not just the heart, it's the hands. True adoration doesn't stop in our emotions. But it also keeps going beyond the hands. Verse 7, Oh, that today you would listen to his voice. Listen, reason, think, use your mind in adoration. Listen to who God is, who God really uh, works himself out to be in the world and in your life. Reason that out in your own mind and come up with a response. Really think, reason about your response to God's love. In other words, the psalm here, it's defining adoration towards God as a holistic orientation of our heart, of our hands, and of our head towards him in love and honor and blessing. It's not just emotional language. And that's crucially important for us to remember. Adoration is all-encompassing. Which means you could show up to church and have an enraptured emotional experience. But if it doesn't go and change your will, if it doesn't go and change your character and your actions, your hands, then it's not true adoration. And on the flip side, you can be consistent in all of your religious rituals. You can believe all the right doctrines and dogmas. You can pray all the right prayers. But if it doesn't prompt in you a ravishing sense of God's beauty and love that shapes your inner life, it's not true adoration. It doesn't transform your heart. True adoration is not just the emotion in our heart. It's not just the intellectual belief in our head. And it's not just behavior through our hands. It's everything. It's the transformation of the whole of the human person. And Jesus actually regularly exposed this all the time throughout his ministry. Remember, to the really religious people, the ones who did and said and believed and thought rightly about God in all things, Jesus showed up and said, actually, you're pretty far from God. Because the inner life had not been transformed. 
They were people who were self-righteous and stuck up. They looked down on other people because they had the right beliefs and others didn't. Their adoration wasn't really God. It was themselves. It was believing the right things and knowing they believe the right things. There's another point in the Gospels where Jesus tells a story. And he uh, uses this story as a way to communicate how people respond to the Gospel, how people respond to him in the world. And in the story, there's a group of people who respond with exuberant and passionate and emotionally enraptured feelings. But then hard circumstances come. Challenging emotions might arise in those hard circumstances, and some of them wither. Because their hands and their head weren't in line with where their heart was in those moments. Their heart was strained or burdened, and so they left. And so it turns out their true adoration wasn't God. It was an emotional feeling or a particular circumstance in which they encountered Psalm 95 is reminding us what Jesus told us throughout his ministry, that true adoration of God is holistic. It's transformative of our whole person. And that means that our practice of adoration in prayer is always going to take many forms. And we should seek to express adoration in many forms. It shouldn't just be one thing. And that's really important for us in our culture because most of us who inhabited the church for a long time, we've been taught that adoration is really just dependent on the feeling. We enter spaces where we feel that that's true. And that's mirroring our culture. Our culture is full of people who jump from adoration to adoration based upon the emotional high that they feel. Think about how we talk about love in our culture. You fall into love as if it's an emotional thing that accidentally happens to you. And then you fall out of love as if it's an emotional thing that accidentally happens to you, right? The most prominent practice of adoration in our culture, love of other people, we say that it's entirely dependent on how we feel in a moment. And that changes from moment to moment. And we've allowed that oftentimes to leak into our spiritual lives. We've created worship spaces that are often, not always, but often focused on a certain emotional high alone. Create a certain emotional feeling in a room. The language of our music is charged to produce emotionality. Oftentimes entering a church feels like a pep rally or glee club for Jesus. And so therefore, the only way that many of us have been taught to really adore Jesus is to feel fired up exuberant, right? Not only have we connected it to emotion, but a very precise emotion, excitement. And the result is that we become people who equate adoration with God to that. And eventually that becomes exhausting. Because none of us are able to sustain that emotional high forever. Nor should we, by the way. We're not designed to be that way. Emotions change. That's how we are as humans. You can't live at an emotional high in every moment of every day. And so when we lose that emotional high, whenever that happens, we often think it's a problem with us because we've been taught that adoration is about getting emotionally high in some way. We think something might be wrong with us because we've been taught that adoration is just dependent on our emotions. I know folks who've showed up in church rooms like this and they see other people with voices singing and maybe tears or hands raised and they're like, well, I don't have that sort of adoration right now. So I'm an outsider. I'm an other in some way because they've been taught Adoration is only excited feelings. But Psalm 95 teaches us that adoration extends well beyond just excited feelings. It can include excited feelings, but it goes way beyond that. Sometimes it's not exuberant. Sometimes adoration is silent. Sometimes it's meditative. Sometimes it's still and content. Sometimes it's intellectually stimulating. Sometimes it's service-oriented. Because adoration is holistic. It's about the whole of the human person. And so in order to adore, according to this psalm, we've got to become people who learn how to adore in every area of our lives, who learn what adoration looks like even when we're not feeling emotionally exuberant. 
There's actually a, a minister and a pastor. His name's Gary Thomas. He researched uh, throughout church history and today all sorts of ways that we can approach God, all sorts of ways that we can adore God that go beyond our typically narrow framework. I call these sacred pathways. That's what he called the book. But I think it's helpful to see some of these for us. I think many of us in this room will resonate with a couple of these. And I think it's also important to remember, oh, there's ways to adore God that I didn't even realize. There's ways that I can encounter the living God in my life in powerful ways that I didn't even know beforehand. So I want to go through a few of these. Uh, The first sacred pathway that he describes is the naturalist pathway. This is when holistic adoration pours forth because you've encountered the wonder and beauty and goodness of God's nature. A waterfall or a hiking trail or the smell of pine or a calm stream or lake or a thunderstorm. Many of us have experienced that welling up of deep longing and passion and wonder in those moments, right? That's a way to adore God as a naturalist. Another way to adore God is as a sensate. This is when holistic adoration pours forth because you're fully engaging your senses. Sight or smell or taste or touch or hearing. You know those moments when you encounter a piece of artwork that just floors you? Or a piece of music that makes you cry and you don't know why? Those deep longings that get satisfied in us with a great meal or a great film? That's sensate, adoration. We get to see the wonder and beauty and goodness of God through creation, through the things that his creation creates. A third pathway of adoration is the traditional pathway. This is when holistic adoration pours forth because we're connected to a rich history. We're reminded of those who have come before us and the things that they've written and the things that they've experienced, what they've taught and learned, prayers and scripture and the rest. Sometimes that's liturgical structures, literally kneeling or standing in service. People connect to God in that way. A fourth uh, pathway of adoration is the ascetic pathway. This is when adoration pours forth because you've intentionally chosen to live simply. And you realize that you can be connected to God in the simplest parts of your life. You don't need the things to be complicated. So practices like fasting or solitude or silence or just living below your means, these are all ways of adoring God in simplicity. The activist pathway is the next one. This is when holistic adoration pours forth because you're working for justice, for flourishing in your neighbors. Many of us have experienced that when you are working on behalf of someone else who is vulnerable and in need, right? There's a, a way that you're connecting to God in that. You're connecting to God's good creation and you're learning how to love that creation. Uh, Another one related to the activist one, it's the caregiver pathway. This is when holistic adoration pours forth because of your care for the lives of the vulnerable and the needy around you. You're pouring yourself out for those who are overlooked by the rest of the world and who are in need. And what you find is that you encounter Jesus there. and You get to adore Jesus through your care of others. The enthusiast pathway. This is the one that many of us have been taught. This is when adoration pours forth because you are just celebratory in your emotions. Come on! Jordan. Jordan knows how to practice enthusiasm, if you haven't spent time with Jordan. This happens in song, in dance, in meals, in community. You celebrate what God has done. The next one is the contemplative pathway. This is when holistic adoration pours forth because you spent real deep time with God in prayer. You've contemplated the face, the character, the posture of God. You've pictured yourself in the scriptures, and you're allowing Jesus to speak to you, a real picture of Jesus to come to you. And then finally, the ninth pathway. This is the intellectual pathway. Holistic adoration pours forth because you've poured over a great bit of theological writing. Or you've come to understand more deeply a passage of scripture. You get to adore God using your mind. Yeah, yeah. There's a few of us in this room, I think, that would resonate with not only the intellectual one, but all of us, right? Adoration is so much bigger than an emotional feeling. 
It includes an emotional feeling, but it's not limited to that. It's the holistic orientation of our heart, our hands, and our heads towards God in love, in honor, and blessing. And that's great to understand what adoration is. But for many of us in the room, it's like, all right, cool, but why is this so important again? Like, why adoration? I mean, most of my needs are taken care of. Day-to-day life, I don't actually feel like I need to change a whole lot. I'm getting all the things I need. I don't need to adore God. My life is pretty good. And the psalmist doesn't stop by just defining what adoration is and isn't here. He actually continues to talk about why we practice it. The reason why is really subtle, but it's profound when you see it. You see it in verse 3. He says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. What the psalmist is saying is that the reason we practice adoration of God, the reason we holistically orient every part of our lives towards him, is because God is the only thing we can worship or adore that will not distort us in some way. God is the only thing we can worship or adore that will not distort us in some way. God is the only adoration that will not lead us eventually to anxiety or despair or loneliness or pain. It's the only object of adoration above all others. See, the assumption of the psalm and of the Bible is the same assumption that J.K. Rowling makes, the same assumption that David Foster Wallace makes, that we all worship or adore something. All of us are already ascribing in our lives right now ultimate value to something, and that thing controls and orients our life. So the question is not if we adore. The question is what we adore and what it's doing to us, how it's shaping us. If you adore material comfort and pleasure, then you will become someone who never quite feels like you have enough or who's always anxious about losing what you have in a bad economy or job loss or a death. And that anxiety will always lead you to become somebody who's a little more stingy and hoarding. You'll become cut off from the needs of others because you're primarily focused on your needs. That's what adoration of comfort will do. If you adore beauty or body or youth or sex, you'll eventually become someone who lives in constant terror over aging. Every added wrinkle and every aching joint will feel like a little death to you. And you'll always feel competitive with others. You'll always feel uglier than others. If you adore your career, you'll become someone who's constantly overworking, constantly thinking about work, constantly losing sleep or relationships because of work. And then you'll find that no amount of success, no amount of money or promotion or fame or job will quite satisfy you. You'll burn out. If you adore marriage or a romantic relationship, you'll become someone who is constantly anxious and secure when you're single. Or when you're in a relationship, you'll find that your partner is not their own independent person, but someone who exists to fulfill your insecurities, to fix you, to complete you, right? They complete me. That's how we talk about our relationships, right? That person actually exists for your means. And eventually, you'll lose any identity distinct from their praise or love. And if they don't provide it for you or you lose them, then you'll become resentful and bitter and broken. If you adore family, you'll become defined by the image of your family that's presented to others. And you'll become brokenhearted when that image isn't reaching your ideal. Which, newsflash, it never will. We all know families, right? We all exist in families. They never quite reach the ideal, ideal we're looking for. Or you'll uh, devote every ounce of yourself to your kids, and then you'll become inconsolable and depressed when they leave the home, or, God forbid, don't need you anymore. All of those adorations are like sand, slowly sliding through our fingers towards anxiety or pain or loss or despair. And there is only one object of adoration whose love remains when all other loves have disappeared. There's only one 
object of adoration whose grace persists when all others have rejected us. There's only one object of adoration who affirms and calls us beloved independent of what we've done or said. It's God. It's the only object worthy of our adoration because it's the only thing that can satisfy the deepest parts of our hearts. That's actually what the word worship means. It's a word that we've mashed two words together. It was originally worth-ship. It was the identification of the thing that is worthy of my worship and then an orientation of myself towards that thing. Friends, the love and the peace and the life that our souls are deeply longing for is only found when we reorient ourselves in adoration of God. That's why we do it. It's not just fun songs that we sing that give us emotional experiences. We do it because nothing else can sustain us in this way. There's a theologian and author named Tim Keller uh, who put it this way. He said, the world is not divided between people who worship and people who don't. The world is divided into people who worship things that will distort their life and people who worship the only object worthy of the adoration of our soul. And today, I don't know what it is for you, but every one of us carries into this room the weight of disordered adoration. All of us do. And that's okay. I carry the weight of disordered adoration. And the words we sing in here, the events we share and participate in, the texts we read, the communion we take together, all of these are reorientation opportunities. All of these are adoration audits, ways that we can examine for ourselves our disordered adorations and then reorient ourselves in the right direction. They're invitations to drop the burdens of our hurried and rushed and anxious lives and to rightly rest in adoration of God. That's why we do this. So the question then for us is, that's great. We understand the what, we understand the why. How? How do we start to do this? Because it's so, so easy, especially in a culture that is constantly throwing other adorations in our face that you see on your screen all the time. It's really hard to define, well, how do I make this a regular rhythm for me? How do I change my liturgies that have been shaping me? And there's a few things I think we learned from this psalm in the how. It's where we're going to close today. How we practice adoration. The first thing we learn is that we need to begin by noticing. Begin by noticing. In Psalm 95, the author starts adoring God because they've noticed things. They've taken a close inventory of the manifold ways that God's love and beauty and grace is evident in the world and in their life. They start by examining nature around them. The mountains and the depths, the sea and the dry land, like we just did together, like Annalise just let us in together. The wonder and beauty of God's love is made manifold and expressed all throughout the created order. But it doesn't stop there. See, if we just stop there, some of us could start to say, well, God is infinite and out there and he created all these things, but he's distant from me, right? But the psalmist doesn't stop. He doesn't just focus on God's infinity. He focuses on God's intimacy here. He says that God is like a shepherd. God woos my heart. God knows my heart. He knows the heart of my people. He's called these people. And so God is not just infinite. God is intimately near to me. He loves me and cares for me. The psalmist's heart is shaped by the goodness of God because they've seen it in them and around them. And so for us, we should start to slow down, to notice. Maybe for you, that means getting up a few minutes early and just sitting outside and watching the birds. Maybe it means going on a walk in the evening once it's not Phoenix outside, right? <laughs> Maybe it means intentionally reflecting on, at the end of your day on all the ways that 
maybe you've overlooked God's providence. Maybe you've overlooked what God is doing. Maybe you've overlooked an interaction. Whatever it is for you, start your adoration with tangible, slowing experiences of what God has done and is doing. One of the primary reasons we fail to adore is because we're just too rushed and inattentive. And so when we practice all this, 